Well, I think we all know, don't we, that how you live your life reflects what you value. How you live your life reflects what you value. So if you spend your days following your football team up and down the country every weekend, people would see, wouldn't they, that you are committed to your football team. If people see you ferrying your kids to every club under the sun all week and every weekend, people might see you as very committed to your family. Well, I wonder if you've ever thought about how people might know that you are ultimately committed to Jesus and to his church. Uh, And our passage today wants to highlight four things we should be doing with our lives that picture to the world that we are committed to Jesus and we love his people. Uh, Now, just to give you a bit of context, the flow of thought from chapter 12 to where we are now will help us understand uh, what we are about to look at this morning. So first, uh, in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we were encouraged to press on with Jesus. He is the ultimate example of enduring patiently for greater glory. And we were called to fix our eyes on him. Then in verses 4 through to 17, uh, we were encouraged to see the marks of holiness and to pursue holiness as God's people. And then finally, in verses 18 to 29, we were told of the benefits of pressing on with Jesus and the consequences of rejecting him. So because his kingdom is unshakable and it will last forever, we were told pursuing holiness is really worthwhile and it is worth doing now. And that really sets us up for chapter 13. Uh, So our passage gives us some specific instructions for holy living. So we've been called to holiness and now it says this is how you can live holy lives. Uh, And it says in verse one, it opens up with let brotherly love continue. Now, brotherly love is the kind of love that is shown within families, isn't it? Uh, And here it's applied to the church. So it's saying the church is your family amongst whom we should continue in brotherly love. So we are to love the church like a family. Uh, and our passage today is essentially just four commands to us. Uh, we're told to continue in brotherly love and then we're given four ways that should happen. What living with brotherly love should look like and here they are. Uh, first in verse two we are to show hospitality. Second verse three remember mistreated people. Uh, verse four we are to honour marriage and verses five and six we are to be content with what we have. So four ways we are to let brotherly love continue in the church. Firstly then, uh, we are to show hospitality. And the principle in verse two is very simple, isn't it? Be hospitable. Now, the immediate context, as we've seen, is about showing brotherly love to one another in the church. And so here we are called to show hospitality to believers in the local church Uh, but it doesn't just stop there because the comments about entertaining angels well that refers to Abraham and Lot both of whom showed hospitality not just to their family not just to uh, folks who were the same religion as them um, but to strangers to men uh, they didn't even realize who they were uh, and they turned out to be 
angels. And so this must extend beyond the church. Our hospitality is not only towards believers. You know, if we're going to entertain angels in the church, uh, doing that without knowing it, uh, it's also going to include hospitality to people that we don't know, isn't it? People that we haven't met before, we aren't aware of who they are. So we're called to show hospitality and to be hospitable, uh, both within the church to people we know and beyond the church to people we don't. It's fairly straightforward and uncomplicated, isn't it, that uh, command? Uh, But I think very often we don't really understand what hospitality actually is. I think that's the problem. Uh, If you ask the average British person, I think certainly uh, the average British Christian, they would tell you something like hospitality is about having people in your home, giving them food and entertaining them, you know, uh, having people over for dinner, that sort of thing. That's often, I think, what we've got in our heads when we think of hospitality. Uh, And, you know, for the record, I think that is a great way to show hospitality, having people in your home, feeding them, entertaining them. That is definitely a way of being hospitable. And I think it's something that we should do. Uh, But I think we need to be careful that we don't insist that that is the way or the only way to be hospitable. Uh, I don't think having people in your house and entertaining them is the definition of hospitality. I just think that is a way of showing hospitality. Because hospitality really is about being friendly and welcoming to people, making people feel welcome. Um, There is such a thing, I think, as having a hospitable spirit, uh, having a welcoming, friendly spirit towards people, both people you know and people you don't. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean having people in your home all the time for meals. It might mean that. I don't think it means less than that. But I don't think that's necessarily what this is saying. Okay? Even though, hear me well, (laughs) that is a brilliant way to show hospitality. And we've also got to say, if you're never ever willing to do that, it might mean you don't have a hospitable spirit. But that's not the definition of hospitality. Um, But the principle isn't having people in your home, per se, even though that's a brilliant way to show hospitality. It's about being friendly to people. It's about being welcoming to people, making them feel like you actually want to know them. Now, you can ask yourself whether people will feel you actually want to know them if they can never ever see the inside of your house. But that's another question. Um, Because that doesn't have to happen in your home, does it? You can make people feel welcome and like you want to spend time with them in a pub or in a cafe or in a restaurant or in the church or over food or in your house or in the park or wherever you happen to go with them. Uh, There are all sorts of ways you can show hospitality to people. But what it does involve and it cannot not involve is being with people and a generosity of spirit towards them. It cannot be less than being with people and having a generosity of spirit towards them. It involves serving people. It might mean making meals in your house, but it might mean buying meals while you're out, or paying for the drinks you've had, or going down the park with people and just giving up your time to be with them. Even then, Um, we've got to be clear, making or buying food for somebody is not what makes you hospitable. 
Paying for the drinks does not make you hospitable if it's clear that you just want to get out of there as quick as possible. (laughs) That's not hospitable, is it? That's not being welcoming. That's not being friendly. That's not making people feel like you want to be with them or they matter. So the, the point I'm trying to make here is this is not primarily about where you are hospitable. It's not even primarily about how you are hospitable. Because you can be hospitable in your house, your church, your pub, your cafe, wherever. It's not primarily about whether you pay for the food and drink or you make the food and drink. It's not really about that either, exactly. Though you might want to do those things. The point is, are you making people welcome? Are you making it clear this person is important to you and you want to spend time with them? Do they seem important to you? Are you generously receiving people? That's the idea here. However you do that. Are you spending time with people and showing them that you are pleased to be with them? That is hospitality. Now, you might not have a home where it is easy to welcome people. Well, I think the Holy Spirit knew there would be Christians like that in the world. And yet he doesn't say you don't have to be hospitable. So if in our heads it's I've got to have people in my house and you can't do that. Well, that can't be what this means for everybody, can it? You know, you might not have a home where you can host people easily. Uh, You might not have a dinner table to eat around and welcome everybody to eat around your dinner table. That's fine. You might not even be a very good cook. That's fine, too. That doesn't matter because that is not the essence of hospitality. You can be hospitable in your home and out of your home because the point is welcoming people, receiving them wherever you are and making clear that you are glad to be with them and serving them. And the question for you is, do you have that sort of hospitable spirit? I think one of the big deficiencies in British culture in particular is that we are not very hospitable as people. We're just not a very hospitable culture. Have you ever heard the phrase, an Englishman's home is his castle? Anybody heard that? Yeah. What that means is, basically, once I'm in my home, I pull up my drawbridge and you're not coming in. That's what that means. Right? Leave me alone. If you want a summary of British culture, that's it. Right? And I think it's a deficiency in our culture. This is something our Iranian brothers and sisters uh, could teach us more than a thing or two about. Middle Eastern cultures in general are much more hospitable than ours. Much more. Uh, And of course, you know, it's important to say there are culturally appropriate ways to do these things. So just because Middle Eastern cultures do it a particular way doesn't mean that's necessarily culturally appropriate here. But I still think there's lots we could learn about how to be hospitable from Middle Eastern cultures, particularly our Iranian brothers and sisters. Um, And we have very little, I think, we can teach them about hospitality. Uh, But the question here is, the mark of brotherly love within the church is hospitality. It's a mark. Do I welcome you? Do you feel welcome by me? Am I glad, because I do have a home, to have you in my home? Am I glad to spend time with you out of my home? 
do you feel like you matter when I meet with you? Or do you feel like I've just got everything else to do and no time for you? Well, that's a mark of our hospitality, isn't it? And we have to ask ourselves these questions individually, but I think we also have to ask ourselves these questions as a church as well. Are we a hospitable, welcoming church? Do we make it clear we're pleased that people are here with us? Do we show them that we're glad that they are here? Those are the things, I think, make a hospitable church. When visitors come, are they welcome? Not just in our services and our meetings, but in our homes and our families and in the things that we do. Are we welcoming and hospitable to people? Now, maybe you're sitting here wondering whether you are hospitable or not. I don't know. Am I that hospitable? Possibly. Um, But if you don't know, there's a very simple fix to this, isn't there? Right After the service today, very easy. Go up to find a brother or sister or maybe a visitor who you've not met before and maybe go and invite them for lunch. That's all you have to do. Or if not lunch, say, let's meet up and go do something. We can start by being hospitable today, can't we? If you don't know whether you're hospitable, start today. Have somebody over, invite somebody, or at least go and chat with them and make them feel like they matter to you. It's very straightforward. We need to be people marked by hospitality. That is how we show brotherly love. Second, uh, we're to remember mistreated people. So in verse 3, the Hebrews are encouraged to remember those who are in prison and who are mistreated. So if you come from Iran, I think you'll understand this better than a lot of us. Uh, Because Iranian believers are often arrested for their faith and are mistreated in prison. And the temptation for our Iranian brothers and sisters, just as it was for these Hebrew believers, is to be a bit embarrassed that these other guys are in prison for their faith. Or if not embarrassed, just to keep our heads down. Make sure no one knows anything about this. Make sure no one knows I'm associated with that. That's the temptation. Um, But we're called here to remember those who are in prison. They're to think, how would I want to be treated in that situation? And to do that for persecuted brothers and sisters. Uh, And it's not just those who are in prison, but we're, we're called to do this for anyone who is mistreated for the name of Jesus. So in view here is remembering anyone who has suffered for the name of Christ. And remembering doesn't just mean thinking about them. You know, oh, I've, I've thought about them now, so I've done that, no problem. It means acting according to their needs. So remembering them and then doing something about the situation as far as you can. So we know Paul was served in prison with support and clothing and other things. And Paul is really calling on the Hebrew believer to do that for other believers who are in prison. And I think there may even be something broader in view than just serving mistreated people. I think the writer lands on this idea that these believers should serve those in prison as though they were suffering themselves. And so the principle being applied to people in prison and to mistreated people applies, I think, even beyond those two situations. It's really a principle to do to other people as you would have them do to you in that situation. 
So this is basically Jesus' golden rule from Matthew chapter 7. Think of how you would want to be treated in any given situation. And if you know others who are in that situation, go and do that to them. Go and serve their needs in that situation. Now, as you know, here in the UK, we're not very likely, certainly at the moment, uh, to be in prison for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us come on a Sunday, we don't expect the police to come barreling through the door and and taking us to prison. Uh, I know a number of us have left countries where that was more likely to happen. Um, But now you're here, it's not that likely for you at the moment. Um, But the principle, I think, is not just about prison. It includes anyone who is mistreated for the name of Jesus. It's about empathising with others and serving them as we would like to be served under those same circumstances. And so while prison might not be the issue for us, there are lots and lots of ways we might be, albeit smaller ways, mistreated for the name of Christ. There are lots of ways I think people um, can be mistreated here. And when mistreatment happens... um, I think very often you can see mistreatment happen from outside the church, people suffering for the name of Christ. You sometimes see mistreatment happening within the church, between believers who are not showing brotherly love to one another for the sake of Christ. And I think whenever mistreatment happens in the church or from outside the church, we need to ask ourselves, how would we want that dealing with? That were me. How would I want that dealing with? And I think when it happens within the church, the answer is through proper church discipline. If someone is mistreating me, I want that to be recognised. I want them to repent, but I want it to be recognised by the church. You know, we want justice, don't we, when we have been treated badly, whether outside or, or inside the church. And so within the church, if we are mistreated by people, the right and appropriate response to that is to raise it and for church discipline to be enacted biblically. But when we get mistreatment from outside uh, the church towards us, you know, there are people who can't undergo church discipline because they're not believers. And so when people are mistreated by their husband or wife outside or by society outside, we still need to ask that question, how would I want to be treated in that scenario? Ask that question, and then when you've figured out how you would want to be treated, go and help and support those people who are suffering appropriately. So, from outside the church, for example, how might people be mistreated? Because they can be caught in systems that don't treat them very well. You know, like education systems, and benefit systems, and asylum systems. And it's worth asking the question, how would I want to be remembered in that situation? And then once we think about that, we can then go and help the other believers who are suffering with those things. And so I don't think the principle is limited to people in prison. Though if that ever happens, I think we should be mindful of the people who have been arrested. The principle here is about thinking of others, thinking how they may be mistreated or facing injustice in whatever form that might take. And then asking ourselves, what would we want to happen with those things and then once we figured that out going and helping in those scenarios and so as a church 
We need to just ask ourselves, are we a church that looks out for people's needs in the face of mistreatment and injustice and difficulty? Are we people who go and help and serve other believers when they are suffering? Ask yourself, what have you done to help those who are facing these sorts of troubles? Are we characterised by that sort of loving service of one another? Thirdly, in verse 4, we show brotherly love by honouring marriage. Marriage is to be honoured by everybody. Uh, Now, clearly in verse 4, there is a warning against adultery here. That's pretty obvious. Married people should be faithful to their spouses. They're not to engage in sexual activity with other people other than their husband or wife. So that's fairly clear. But it also says marriage is to be honoured by all. So this also includes unmarried people too, doesn't it? The warning about sexual immorality and adulterers, well that includes both married and unmarried people, doesn't it? So married people and unmarried people alike should not engage in sexual activity with anybody that they are not married to. And these things are covered by the terms adultery and sexual immorality. So the point is sexual immorality is for, sorry, not immorality, sexual activity is for marriage alone. And that's it. Uh, But I do think there's something more going on here. This is not just telling you about who you can sleep with. Um, honouring marriage means holding it in high esteem. So, of course, at a bare minimum, that means not committing adultery and not engaging in sexual immorality. That's, that's the minimum. You know, those things are reserved for marriage because it's special. But honouring marriage is much, much bigger than that. It means treating your husband or wife well. Uh, loving them as Jesus loved the church and serving them as Jesus has served us. That's what it means to honour marriage. It means making much of marriage. So that means recognising that marriage is good. Even if we aren't married ourselves, marriage is good, because it pictures Jesus' relationship with the church. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. So whatever undercuts marriage, whatever undercuts Um, faithful committed marriage between a man and a woman undercuts God's picture of Jesus relationship with his church so how we do marriage as Christians pictures to the world how Jesus will treat his church so whatever or whenever marriages are unfaithful what they suggest is Jesus will be unfaithful to his church Whenever marriages are abusive, they imply that Jesus will abuse his church. Whatever holds marriage in low regard and treats it lightly suggests Jesus will hold the church in low regard and treat it lightly. So whatever distorts marriage distorts something about Jesus and his church. That is why marriage must be held in high esteem. The picture of marriage is more important than many of us realise. And that is why marriage is to be honoured and marriage is to be held in high esteem. Because through it, we picture to the world Jesus' relationship with his people. We picture to the world how Jesus will treat his church. 
And so what does that mean then for us in practice? Well, it means if you're married, ask yourself that question. What does your marriage picture about Jesus and his church? Does how you treat your husband or wife reflect how you understand Jesus will treat us? Is your marriage a good or a bad picture of the gospel? Now, if you're single, you can ask yourself, does my lifestyle suggest that I honour marriage? Am I doing things or watching things that mean I am demeaning marriage? As single people, how you act in your singleness also pictures the gospel. The honour you give to marriage emphasises the relationship between Jesus and his church. So if you go round as a single person breaking up people's marriages, you undercut that picture God has given to the world of how Christ will treat his church. You encourage the view that there are causes outside that might lead Jesus to separate from his people. Not only are you not showing brotherly love to married people when you do that, you are distorting the gospel. The Bible tells us that is not true. Jesus will not separate from his church. And we undercut that picture if we go around breaking up marriages. If you go around indulging your sexual appetites outside of committed monogamous heterosexual marriage, you distort God's picture to the world. Jesus calls us to honour marriage because doing so honours the gospel. The picture of Jesus and the church is represented by faithful monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. And so we need to be really careful that we don't inadvertently present a false gospel through the way we behave in our marriages by distorting God's picture. And so what does your view of marriage What does the way you live, either as a married couple or as a single person, say about your view of the gospel and how Jesus will treat his church? So we are to honour marriage. Finally, in verses 5 and 6, we're to be content uh, with what we have. Uh, So verses 5 and 6 are really two commands, but they're part of the same idea, really. Uh, We're told to keep ourselves free from the love of money, And to be satisfied with what we have. So effectively don't obsess over chasing money. But content yourself with whatever God has given you. Uh, Because Jesus said didn't he. You cannot serve two masters. You can either serve God or money. And serving God means trusting him. And being content with whatever he has given us. And that's why here the writer quotes Deuteronomy, where God says he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. What he's saying is we can trust him to care for our needs because he's with us. We can be content with what we have because he is always with us. He is all that we need and he will provide. The next quote from the Psalms builds on exactly that same idea. It says, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Chasing more and more money is not a sign that the Lord is your helper and you're not afraid. It is a sign of an anxious heart that fears not having enough. But Christians don't trust in money to be enough. They trust in the Lord. They trust in God 
to provide. So as Christian people, we should not be characterised by a desire for more and more money and stuff. We should be content because we are serving and trusting Jesus, not chasing after money. And it's important to say here, uh, money is not wrong. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to even need money to live. It's not wrong to even enjoy your money. But your contentment with what you have, whether you have lots or you only have a little, is a sign of how content you really are with the Lord Jesus. How you view money is a sign of how content you really are with the Lord Jesus. And I think that is why this command about money is so important, because just as honouring marriage pictures the gospel to the world, how we treat money pictures what we actually think of Jesus. If we're obsessed with getting more money, it suggests we are not so concerned with finding our contentment in Christ. It suggests we're not actually content with the Lord Jesus. Now, to a watching world, what does it say to them that we never, ever meet with God's people? We never want to go and spend time with them. We never have time to do anything with them because we're too busy working and trying to earn more and more cash. What does it say to a watching world that we never give any money to the work of the gospel? We never give any money to the ministry of the church. We never give to support any ministry because really there's more stuff we want or we don't feel we've got enough or actually we're just prioritising other things. You know, I have to ask these same things of myself. Uh, If I never gave to the ministry of the church... What does that suggest about how I view God's people and how I view Jesus? What does it actually suggest about how content I am with Christ and how much I really love money and things? What if I've decided, you know, I'm I'm the minister here, right? So if anything, I'm a huge drain on the church's resources here um, financially. Um, And what if I decided I'm not quite on enough here? You don't really pay me well enough. So I'm going to go and take a better paying job. That would be a good idea. Take me away from serving the people I've been called to serve. Take me away from preaching the word. Take me away from the ministry I've been given. Um, And I'm I'm going to go after that. Not, Not for any reason really, other than I just feel I could do with a bit more cash. What does that say about how content I am with Jesus and how much I really value his church. Now, again, I'm not saying it is always wrong to not be in ministry and to go and get a secular job. That's not what I'm saying. But if the reason I basically am leaving ministry is because I feel like I could just get better money somewhere else, what does that say about how much I love Jesus and his church? I think this is fair. If you want a quick barometer of where your heart is at, It's not perfect, but if you want a quick barometer of where your heart is at, just look at your bank account. Go and see how much money you spend on everything you do, everything in your life. Um, Even if you wanted to, 
I'm not, I'm not sure whether you should do this, but even if you wanted to, you could say, well, okay, look, I have to have a house, I have to have a car, I will, I will remove the things I have to have. But even if you take those out, compare what you give to the church to what you spend on going to the cinema, going out for coffee, going and doing things that, you, you know, they're fun things, they're fine things, but you don't have to do them. How much you spend on your holidays. Go and just compare those two things and see how they line up. And ask yourself, how content am I with Jesus? What does my use of my money say about how much I love the Lord and how much I love his church? I think it's a very quick barometer. That is not a bad measure of where your heart is at. If there is absolutely nothing ever flowing from your account to the Lord, that's got to be a problem, surely. If everything else comes before what you give to the Lord, even if you give quite a high figure, maybe you give loads of money. But if everything else you get first and then you go, well, I've got this left over, I'll give the Lord that. Well, what does that say about your priorities for the Lord? You know, we've got to ask ourselves, might it be I can always find the money for the stuff that I really want. But I struggle to find the money for the Lord and his people. That is a sign, isn't it, that we're not really content with Jesus and we don't really love his church. It's not a perfect measure. So, you know, take that as far as it goes. But it's, a, it's not a bad barometer. And it matters because I think we show the world what we think of Jesus. We show the world the greatness of Jesus. And we show the world how content we are with Jesus by how we use our money. If the world sees us obsessing over money, over amassing stuff, then they will see no reason to view us as any different to them, will they? Really. They won't have any cause to see Jesus as better than what they're doing because we're basically just doing the same thing. If we really love Jesus, we'll be so content and satisfied with him, whether he's trusted us with lots of money or he's only given us a little bit of money, that we will be characterised by a, a radical generosity that is not about chasing money, but is glad to give it away. I mean, if you know Jesus is coming again, if you know this life is not all there is, it makes perfect sense to give your money for the sake of the unshakable kingdom that will last. If this life is all there is and Jesus isn't real and he's not coming back, then amassing as much stuff now as you can get and squeezing every bit of joy out of life now makes perfect sense. But what does it say to the world if we're squeezing every bit of our cash for our own pleasure and our own enjoyment and all the things we really want to do. What does that say about whether we actually think Jesus is coming back? What does that say about how content we are with Jesus? What does that say about how much we really love Jesus and his work and what he stands for? You know, when the world sees our contentment in Christ because we are so radically generous towards his people and towards his work and towards who he is and what he does and what he stands for, then they might see the gospel that we proclaim is different. 
It must have something about it. It must, there must be a reason it causes us to do what by worldly standards makes absolutely no sense to do. I think how we use our money is a measure of our contentment in Christ. You know, we shouldn't be obsessed about money, should we? If we're going to obsess about anything, let's obsess about Jesus. We don't need to chase money, but we want to use our money to serve the cause of his kingdom. If we're really joyfully content with Jesus, then we'll actually be using our money to do some of these things that show brotherly love, won't we? Maybe we'll use our money not to serve ourselves, but to show hospitality. We'll use our money not to serve ourselves, but to remember those mistreated people that we're called to remember. Maybe we'll even use our money to honour our marriage in some way. So I don't just spend it on me because I fancy another game on the Switch. I'll spend it on my wife because that honours our marriage better, right? But if we're really content with Jesus, we'll have no problem with that. Because what, what's money at the end of the day? It's a tool to be used for the glory of God. And these here, these four things are signs that we are pursuing brotherly love and pursuing the holiness to which we are called. Signs that we love Jesus more than we love other things. Hospitality and remembering mistreated people is a sign that you love them more than you love yourself. Honouring your marriage is a sign that you love your spouse more than you love yourself. They are signs that you value the gospel more than you value your own desires. Being content with what you have is a sign that you are content with the gospel. You are content with Christ. You love him above all. And so this sort of sermon's always a difficult one because we're not here to preach moralism, are we? This is not a gospel of self-help. I'm not saying if you do these things, then you're right with Jesus. Praise God. That's not right. The question is, if you're right with Jesus, if you love him, if you know you're in right standing with God, then why aren't we doing these things? Or are we doing these things? We want to pursue them more. These are not four steps to heaven. <laughs> These are four things that godly people will do. Four things that are just evidence that we really do love the Lord Jesus. We really do honour him. We really do uh, want to do as he commands. And so we can pray this morning. That we would be a church full of people who want to do these things. Not because they save us, not because they make us right with God, but because they are signs that we already are right with God. If we really love him, will we do these things?